if you keep in front of you Amos chapter 5 and 6, which we'll be looking at this morning. Just a reminder to us, uh, we are looking particularly at uh, the book of Amos because it does a number of things for us. Because Amos is focused on the sin of God's people, the northern kingdom of Israel, at the time of his preaching and the time of his writing, the book of Amos helps us to look at our sin. And until we see the depth of our sin, until we see the idolatry that rules our hearts, it's very difficult to see the beauty and the glory of God's amazing grace. So many, many uh, believers around the world use these 40 days uh, from Ash Wednesday to the, the, the Resurrection Sunday, use it as a, as a way to, to focus a time of repentance and confession, leading up to Good Friday and Easter when we see the glory and the beauty of God's grace poured out on us. So thinking through the book of Amos is not designed to, you know, to crush you under the weight of your sin, but to drive you to Jesus, to see the incredible gift of grace that God has given us in him. But it's also important as we see what Amos says about the people of God, the northern kingdom of Israel at this time, because that's one of the shocking things about the book, right? He, other than in the first chapter where he does talk about the surrounding nations and the judgment that God is going to bring to them, the, the rest of the book from Amos 2 to the end of the book, it's talking about what God is going to do to his own people. And if the people of God, Israel, who had the Mosaic law, they, they had been given tremendous amounts of revelation, certainly in comparison to the surrounding nations. If the people of God in Amos' day can, can fall into grievous sin, it can happen to us. It can happen to the church. It can happen to Stonehill Church. It can happen to us individually. And so this is why it is so crucial for us to grapple with this book as hard as it is at times. This morning what Amos is going to do uh, is going to challenge us with three exhortations. He's going to exhort us to, to engage in, in, in three activities and I want us to see each of these activities which will lead nicely into our time of communion as we celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Let's look at the first one. We see it in the first 13 verses of chapter 5. And the first uh, exhortation that, that Amos gives us is he's calling us, well, he's calling the people of, of Israel, but he's calling us by application. He's calling us, all of us, to pursue the living God. So let's work our way through the first 13 verses of chapter 5 to see how Amos frames this. He begins in verse 1, hear this word that the Lord, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. Essentially what 
Amos and what God is saying to the people of God, the northern kingdom of Israel, that the nation is doomed. In just a few decades, the Assyrians will come in and they will destroy the northern kingdom and they will deport many people from the northern kingdom all over the Assyrian empire. Israel, the people of God, is like a virgin that has fallen, forsaken, no one to raise her up. God goes on to say in verse 3, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. In other words, the nation of Israel is doomed. Assyria will come in and there will be 90% casualty rate, so to speak. And then the exhortation. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Then he goes on into verse 6, it says, seek the Lord and live. What Amos is saying to the northern kingdom of Israel, and what God's word is saying to us, is that what is vastly and most critical for us is that we need to pursue a relationship with the living God. In some sense, I'm not sure that he says, seek the Lord and live as he's talking necessarily to the whole nation. He may simply be talking to the possibility, which he mentions later in this chapter, that there might be a remnant of the northern kingdom who will call out to God. And they will repent and they will seek the Lord. And that that's the only way these individuals can be saved, even though the nation itself is doomed. But he says, seek me and live. And what's interesting, he says, do not seek Bethel or don't enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. All of these three cities were places of worship, places where people in the northern kingdom would go to worship. Bethel would have been a major center of worship. Gilgal would have been the original um, uh, sort of camp that Israel made after they crossed over the Jordan as they got, went, came into the promised land. <coughs> Beersheba is actually in Judah, but it's many of the northern kingdom would go to Beersheba to worship. It's very interesting that he says, don't go to these places. They're all going to come to nothing. What, what, what Amos and God are clearly concerned about is that the northern kingdom was very religious. They went to worship. I don't know if they were on time better than us, but they went to worship, just like you are in worship right now. They, they offered sacrifices, It's not that they neglected the communal worship. They actually went to these worship sites. They they would sing songs of praise. They would offer sacrifices. And yet, in spite of their religious activity, they are far, far, far away from God. And that's why God and Amos are saying, seek me. Pursue the living God in a relationship, not in ritual. Pursue the living God in in a vital relationship where you're a loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, not simply observing religious duties. And of course, that forces a very penetrating question on us. It would be easy for any of us All of us here today, all of us online, you're you're, you're doing the right thing. You're coming to worship. But you can come to worship and you can sing all the songs. 
You can actually quasi pay attention to the sermon. And yet be very, very, very far from God himself. Because on in verse 6 it says, seek the Lord and live. Now, this is a matter of life and death. <laughs> in other words, if these individuals within the nation of Israel that's going to be destroyed by the Assyrians in just a few decades, do not begin to seek the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Their doom, along with the nation, is completely secure. It's going to happen. And this is the, I think, the challenge for all of us. Are we seeking the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are we loving God? Do we have a passion for God? Is relating to God plus nothing else all that grips our heart? And for the northern kingdom, while they are involved in many, many religious activities, they are not actually seeking God, pursuing God relationally at all. And in some sense, their religious activity blinds them to the deep, troubled, even dangerous spiritual situation that they find themselves in. Now, it's interesting. If you go to Amos 6, you, you begin to get a little more understanding of why this would be. So turn to Amos 6, uh, chapter 1. He says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? Verse 4, woe to those who lie on the beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and cats from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. And like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. One of the problems for the northern kingdom, and one of the problems we might have, is their affluence. Their affluence and, and, and their um, wealth has brought them a false sense of security. John Calvin talks about how that oftentimes wealth inebriates us from seeing things clearly spiritually. We begin to trust in our, our own wealth. We, just, we begin to trust in ourselves. We begin to believe that through our ingenuity, we have achieved all these things. And God becomes an afterthought. Or at best, God becomes the means to an end, to, to bless us in these uh, pursuits. The reality is... John Calvin says this, he says, For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, 
that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him. They will never yield him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. And that's what's happened to the northern kingdom, but I fear that that could happen to any of us. We're a passion for God, and I'll put it in a New Testament context, a passion for Jesus Christ is not the driving force of our life. So the first exhortation is to pursue the living God. It's not in ritual, it's in relationship. It's not in religious activity, it's in a personal relating to him. It's not using God as an end to a means, it's, it's seeing God as the end, the purpose, the, 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 the beauty and glory of God is, is who we see and because of what he's done, we find our hope, our joy, our contentment, our satisfaction in him alone plus nothing else. John Piper has a little, um, a little quote that I think is important. He talks about what is sin. Well, it is, it is the glory of God not honored. It's the holiness of God not reverenced. It's the greatness of God not admired. It's the power of God not praised. It's the truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. That is sin. And I think the problem for all of us is, in and of ourselves, we don't have the power to gin up this sort of passion for God that we ought to have. We have to ask God by his spirit to help us see this God for all that he is, to see his beauty and his glory, his holiness, his wrath, his love, his mercy and grace, and ask the spirit of God to give us this passion to know God plus nothing. That's the first exhortation that Amos gives us. Pursue a relationship with the living God. But there's a second exhortation that Amos gives the people of Israel and us by extension in verses 14 through 17. He also says this, seek God and not evil that you may live and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. There's the phrase where I think Amos might, not, might have said the nation is doomed, but individuals might find salvation if they would repent. If they would seek God and if they would seek good. To seek good means to pursue the welfare of the needy. This is the second exhortation, to pursue the welfare of the needy. We saw last week that, um, that God has a special concern for the poor, particularly for widows, orphans, 
foreigners, as he talks about, people who have come from another place and reside in Israel. He's concerned about the sick, the infirmed, those people who can't help themselves, those people who have great need. And because God cares for these individuals, he wants his people to care for them as well. In a very real sense, you have to see that both of these things work together. In other words, if you say, well, I'm really pursuing God. I'm really pursuing a relationship with God. But if you're not caring for your neighbor, that pursuit of the living God is not genuine. It's not real. There's a problem. It's the way the entire moral law of God is set up. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But secondly, you love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're not doing good to those who need help, something is amiss in your relationship with God. In other words, you can't seek God and then not seek your neighbor. And, 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 and conversely, you can't do it the other way too. You can't be really involved with the needy and not seek God. They work together. One fuels the other. One is in a, it sort of lets you know if you are doing the other. God is deeply concerned that among God's people, we would hate evil, we would love the good, that we would do what we can to establish justice in the gate. wants us to pursue the welfare of the needy. Just almost finished that very fascinating book. I I feel terrible. I was a history major and was not aware of this individual. Um, It's it's a biography of Fred Shuttlesworth. He's a pastor of the Bethel Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama in the 50s and 1950s and 1960s. Fred Shuttlesworth is a lot like us. He believes in Jesus Christ. He takes the Bible seriously. He believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he also lived in a city where predominantly his congregation was denied basic access to to Birmingham, Alabama. And so he preached the gospel on Sundays for sure, but he also worked throughout the week at times to try to help Birmingham become a place of more justice. His proposals were not radical, right? All he wanted, one of the things that he wanted and worked for is he simply wanted the, the city to consider hiring African Americans for the police force. They wouldn't even interview them. He stood up for that. He also was a little bit concerned that none of the businesses downtown, who, you know, retail shops, department stores, would hire any African Americans to serve as clerks. He also simply wanted to be able to go and eat lunch at the lunch counter in the downtown business district, which he was not allowed to do because he was African-American. This is not radical, okay? This is not radical proposals. And for that, Fred Shuttlesworth Parsonage was bombed and destroyed. His church was bombed three times, and he kept pursuing justice. He kept pursuing the welfare of the needy. And he clearly understood that his call for justice came right out of the Bible. Quote, he's basically talking about 
how many people in Birmingham, both black and white, were saying, just let the status quo be. Don't seek justice like this. So here's what he says. Well, some of you want to let the status quo be as it is. Otherwise, don't trouble the waters. Don't try to correct nothing. Just leave it alone and let the Lord fix it. You see, there are some of us who really believe that the Lord's not going to do things that you can do for yourself. That's the old school. To me, the new school is to challenge wrong as the prophets did. The major prophets did that in the Old Testament, as the preachers of the gospel will do. You have to challenge sin in high places. And he did. And he almost lost his life. He was jailed for simply wanting these things that I've just described. And when Birmingham, many of you have seen these pictures, when African Americans were simply demonstrating for these things, and they were demonstrating after four young girls were killed in the bombing of a church, a different church, Bull Connor, commissioner of police, put a fire hydrant on Fred Shuttlesworth, sent him to the hospital. The force of the water gave him a concussion. But he kept going. And his protest and his desire for justice was also wrapped in love and grace and mercy. Notice what he says here. Yes, we are continuing a high-pressure program. Yes, we're doing that in Birmingham. But ours is not a pressure which arouses men to act like beasts. In the last four years, and these are his words, no Negro from our organization has bombed a home or mobbed a white man or castrated a white man or broken into a home for violence. In fact, no white today is in the danger from a Negro and our churches will not close their doors to a white person if you come to our church on Sunday morning. Our pressure helps people to know the meaning of brotherhood and commits them against the evils of segregation which forbids them to act and live like brothers. Amos and God are calling us to pursue the welfare of the needy. I find these words pretty convicting. I think if we were trying to bring justice as a church somewhere you know, in, in, in Princeton, and if they bombed my townhouse, I'm going to Chick-fil-A. That's what I thought when I read this. If I was in jail the number of times he was in jail, if I was vilified like he was, if I was sprayed down by a fire hose, if I was beaten up like he was, if the church was bombed multiple times, be very difficult for me to pursue the welfare of the needy. But that's what we're called to do. Now the reality is, I'm not sure all of us are called into some grand crusade, you know, grand movement like Fred Shuttlesworth was, was called to. A lot of, of pursuing the welfare of the needy is, is very small acts that make an internal impact. You know, for some of you, just volunteering to cook a meal in our meal train here at Stonehill is a wonderful way to care for the needy. 
I suspect there's some middle school or high school students who are going to go into school tomorrow. And you know there are students in the lunchroom of the school that you eat at every day. And you know that there are some students who never eat with another person. They're all by themselves. And you could be the one who could leave your group and spend time with the person who's isolated, lonely, struggling. We've got plenty of opportunity got people in the hospital. Some of you might be called and you call Pastor Andrew and go visit people in the hospital. It's a tremendous gift. Or to go be involved in some of the assisted living centers that we're already involved in. Or maybe to even be involved with ISI to, to help one of the many international students who've come to Princeton for, for schooling and help those families, some of which struggle with English, struggle with dealing with a, a whole new culture. It doesn't have to be this gigantic thing, but the reality is what all of us should be asking is who is God directing us to to pursue the welfare of the needy? Who are the needy people around us who God is saying, I want you to engage in that? That's what Amos is asking us to consider and to think about. So first, we need to pursue the living God in a relationship. Second, we need to pursue the welfare of the needy. And lastly, we need to pursue repentance from our idolatry. And this is a horrific part of the book of Amos. Look at verse 21, 521. This is God speaking about the worship services of his own people, the northern kingdom of Israel. He goes, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not even look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What God is saying to his own people is, I can't stand your worship. It, it offends me. It's noxious to me. Why is it noxious? Well, partly because justice is not rolling through God's people the way it ought to be. But it's also true that the people of God in Israel are involved in idolatry. Verse 25, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? And then look at this, you shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourself, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. What Amos and God are saying to the northern kingdom of Israel is even in the wilderness, even when I was with you for 40 years in the wilderness, you fell into idolatry. And of course they did. Aaron made two golden calves for them to worship while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And then they had these other Babylonian or Mesopotamian star gods that, that they were presently involved with. They were involved in idolatry. Something other than God had taken the place of God for the very people of God. And for that, God cannot even stand their worship. thought about this all week. I wonder if we interviewed Jesus, you know, how do you like Stonehill's worship? 
I hope he would like it. But when we fall into idolatry, he probably doesn't like it too much. And of course, what is an idol? Well, you know, John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. And of course, most of us, when we think of an idol, we think of some statue that we bow down to, a statue of wood, stone, or metal worshipped by pagan people. But the concept of idolatry is far more broader. And as Ken Sandy says, it's far more personal than that. An idol is anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. In biblical terms, it is something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivates us, that masters, it rules us, or that we trust, fear, or serve. In short, it is something we love and pursue more than God. The reality is, every time we fall into sin, and again, I think sometimes we think of sin as breaking a few rules, like getting a traffic ticket. You know, okay, I'll pay the ticket and move on. Underneath every sin that we commit, it means that we put something else in our hearts that are more important than God. Or we are using God to get these other things. And those things actually are what we really want, what we really live for, what we, what we really need for have joy and contentment. So I think what... Amos and God are trying to communicate to the northern king, kingdom of Israel, but to us today by application, is we need to pursue repentance from our own idolatry. What are the things, the pursuits, the things that really are the things you must have to have real joy, peace, contentment, satisfaction? If, it's, if that's not God, if that's not Jesus, it's an idol. And the problem with idolatry is you can take something that is really good and turn it into an idol if you want it more than God. You can take your career. You can take your kids. You can take your spouse. You can take the desire for a spouse. You can take your academic uh, achievements. And those are all good things, and it's not wrong to work for those. But if those things begin to be the thing that you must have, you must have academic you know, progress. You must be you know, n- noted by your peers as a, as, as, a, as a leader in the field. And if you can't have that, you have no contentment, no peace, no security, no joy. That has become an idol, and God has been replaced. And we need, as God's people today, the church, Stone Hill, we need to confess our sins in this kind of robust way. It's not simply that we broke a few rules. We've committed idolatry, and we need to say it and confess it. So Amos challenges us to seek or to pursue a relationship with the living God, not in ritual, not in religious activity. He wants us to pursue the welfare of the needy. <clears throat> and it's asking us to consider who might that be. And he's also asking us to pursue repentance from the idolatries of our heart. So to help us get started with that, I want us to lead us in a time of confession, and this will be responsive as we confess our idolatry together. I'd like to ask the communion servers to come forward now, and you can come up right here and sit down, because this will lead us into communion.
So I believe the words will be on the screen. I will read the lighter print. I need you to respond in this corporate confession in the bold face type. Almighty and holy God, your love for justice delights our hearts. If you were not a just and holy God, this world which you created and governed down to the most microscopic detail would be unbearable to live in. However, we also admit that your love for justice terrifies our souls. If we were to... We have entertained evil thoughts toward others and have preferred ourselves and our favorite people over those who are outcast in need of our love and care. We have wearied you by laughing over evil things that we ought to hate. We have grieved you by hating good things and calling them evil simply because they bore us or make us feel uncomfortable. Father, we deserve your judgment. Holy Spirit, there's nothing we can do to satisfy God's justice. If even our best acts are like filthy rags, then we need the goodness of Jesus to cover us just as much on our best days as on our worst days. Ignite our hearts with a fiery gratitude that compels us to adore our Savior and to love what he calls good. For those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, let us rejoice in this promise of pardon. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. By his wounds, you have been healed. 